Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Ken Neppel from the University of Iowa talking about high-risk prostate cancer and biochemical recurrence. Okay, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, my name is Ken Neppel. I'm a urologist uh, at the University of Iowa. I uh, did a fellowship at Washington University in St. Louis in uh, urologic oncology. So uh, very happy to be involved uh, with the program. Uh, I have our excellent uh, resident moderator, uh, Dr. Uh, Justin Drovish. Uh, Drovish is uh, sporting the uh, COVID mustache uh, for our amusement uh, later, potentially. Uh, so appreciate him uh, uh, being available. So uh, topic uh, for today is going to be uh, relatively uh, uh, dense as far as uh, information. Uh, and uh, kind of breath. Uh, it, we're looking at non-metastatic uh, high-risk prostate cancer uh, and also uh, looking at the uh, related topic of uh, biochemical uh, recurrence. So I have no specific uh, financial uh, disclosures or commercial uh, disclosures. Um, in the interest of uh, social distancing, this is some uh, uh, street signs that our hospital had put together as far as standing together. My children, uh, all three of them, uh, got to be uh, brainstorming uh, and realized the backside was available. Uh, that is a, a lawn tortoise that had replaced uh, Wilbur, our cat who had died uh, a while back. So they uh, put the, the uh, turtle there and said, uh, why'd the turtle not cross the road? Uh, to, keep, uh, to keep social distance. So uh, one other uh, tidbit, uh, as I live a little bit uh, outside of uh, town, a little bit rural here, uh, and was talking with one of my neighbors and they actually purchased a dairy cow because of some concerns related to uh, COVID and, and milk. Uh, and so I now am aware that you need to uh, milk a cow twice a day uh, and one dairy cow provides uh, four gallons of milk a day. So if you get bored uh, at, at dinner tonight, you can let your uh, uh, significant other friend uh, know, know about that. So um, in preparation for this, uh, which is you know, clearly a, a great program and very happy to be involved, uh, but I did go ahead and uh, listen to uh, the lectures uh, from Dr. Cooperberg about prostate cancer screening, diagnosis, and risk stratification, uh, and also uh, another excellent lec lecture from uh, Dr. Ben uh, Ristow at Connecticut. And so I'm going to allude specifically uh, to a few of the slides uh, that they uh, discussed. Uh, so if you've heard those lectures before, hopefully this will build on that. Uh, if you've not yet heard those, it should still be complimentary, and you can go back uh, and review those with uh, hopefully a little bit more uh, knowledge uh, in this space. So uh, learning objectives. So we're going to try to uh, talk about the evidence for treatment uh, of high-risk prostate cancer and also where evidence may be lacking in some circumstances. Discuss evaluation management of biochemical recurrence uh, after prostate cancer, not just high-risk but any prostate cancer. At the end we're going to uh, kind of run through relatively quickly some nuclear imaging that's available for prostate cancer and what may be on the on the horizon. Uh, and so specifically, I have an area uh, not only in, in interest, not just in cancer treatment, but also in uh, use the electronic health record, have a role here uh, with our uh, university hospital in doing that. So I'm also going to try to maybe highlight um, how you can use the medical record uh, to um, provide some additional information for, for patient counseling and shared decision making. I also would like to acknowledge that this is a space where there is substantial practice uh, variability. Uh, and we'll talk about some of that data. Um, but, you know, I'm going to basically talk about the data I'm aware, aware of, how I deal with uh, patients that I'm seeing, you know, on a regular basis, 
uh, what the evidence base for that is, but acknowledge that there may be some uh, different uh, management uh, options. And, you know, there's some gray area as to what exa exactly standard of care is in some of these situations. But I think the more you can inform yourself in those situations where there is gray area, uh, the better we're all gonna, gonna be and your patients will be better also. Um, so uh, hopefully everyone on the call is uh, aware of uh, Indiana Jones. If not, then you can uh, have something to do this weekend. But basically what we're searching for, so Indiana was always searching for, for things in, in the movies, but really who should we be treating? Who should we not be treating? How should we treat them? Uh, what's the optimal uh, treatment? And as we talk about multimodal therapy and sequencing therapy, what's the optimal sequence uh, of that therapy? And also, what's the optimal patient counseling uh, and shared decision-making that, that comes with that? Uh, and then I also inserted what I thought was a cool picture of a median lobe uh, prostate uh, uh, along with the uh, anatomic uh, specimen there. So I'm going to give uh, a three-slide uh, overview of kind of my impression of, of high-risk prostate cancer. And some of this is informed uh, by uh, experience, but also I give our, our medical student a lecture on principles of cancer surgery. And so this is a slide that I show them, and I think sometimes I allude to when I'm counseling patients. And so this, I'll walk you through it, lots of information, but basically we're looking at five-year survival rates for different types of cancer, specifically in three situations, localized disease, regional, you know, what would be lymph node involvement, and distant disease. And so what we highlight there uh, is for prostate cancer, five-year survival, localized disease, basically 100% regional disease, so even if there's lymph node involvement, still basically 100%. It isn't until you have distant disease that you see an impact on uh, five-year survival. And, and sometimes I'll talk to patients who are extremely worried about their cancer and let them know that I see cancer as a spectrum. Uh, and you can contrast that to pancreatic, uh, pancreatic cancer. If you're thought to have pancreatic uh, you know, cancer, your five-year survival rate is still only 30%. So we want to keep in mind that you know, cancer is important. We want to, um, you know, support patients' uh, uh, sort of thoughts, but maybe sometimes try to alleviate some of the anxiety that comes with uh, using that cancer word. So in looking at the, a couple of those prior lectures that were done, one of the specific questions uh, that had come up uh, from a, a listener afterwards uh, was, what do you tell patients about the natural history of prostate cancer? So I'll specifically say, you know, what do you tell a patient who says, you know, I know I have high-risk prostate cancer. It doesn't look like there's anything elsewhere in my body, but what if I don't do anything? So one of the best, you know, looks at this that you're going to be able to find is from Peter Albertson. Uh, they had looked at um, patients who were managed conservatively in the state of uh, Connecticut over a long period of time, 1971 to 1984. So they're able to look at how patients did that did not receive any active treatment and were just managed with either observation or androgen deprivation therapy. So if you look specifically at that outcomes in their conclusions, you know, it was men with high-grade prostate cancer have a high probability of dying from prostate cancer within 10 years of diagnosis. Specifically, this is a great visual uh, to show that. So if you look uh, at the top columns, uh, you know, we have different age groups, but if we specifically highlight Gleason score eight to 10 patients. So if you look at patients in their 50s, there's a huge proportion of patients that are going to die from prostate cancer if they're treated. But I think it's also notable that for patients in their early 70s, that their risk of dying of prostate cancer is almost equal to their risk of dying of any other cause. So even in older patients, there are still some specific risks that would come with not treating uh, prostate cancer. 
and we'll talk about how that is uh, kind of entrenched in some of the, the guidelines that we'll review. So how do we define high-risk prostate cancer? Dr. Cooperberg specifically, uh, you know, kind of highlighted some of the limitations about AUA versus NCCN, um, you know, definitions. And so, you know, I think uh, there's a little bit of a Larry Flint uh, kind of definition that high-risk prostate cancer is, you know, it when you see it. Um, but, you know, this is a specific grouping, but I think it's easy to remember that you can consider, you know, Gleason 8, 9, and 10, or, you know, termed grade group 4 or 5 uh, patients as being in that high-risk uh, group. Specifically, doesn't matter if we're calling patients, you know, high-risk or very high-risk. It may not really matter when you look at guidelines because those groups are combined. But I think from a, a prediction and, and statistical research uh, side, you know, those groups are uh, quite different if patients have high risk versus very high risk. And so as Dr. Cooperberg had talked about, I think CAPRA uh, risk score is another great way uh, to look at uh, stratifying patients, you know, by risk. And so another kind of question that would come up is, you know, we see what we see in regular practice, but what about if you look at population-based data how is high-risk prostate cancer treated in the real world? Another one of Dr. Cooperberg's slides that showed these changes over time. Uh, I know my computer monitor had kind of messed with the, the colors a little bit. And so I went ahead and went back to his original paper and included the chart there. And so what you can see is that the triangles, uh, which are uh, open triangles, which are the radical prostatectomy, there was a substantial increase in the number of patients who got radical prostatectomy from the early 2000s. Uh, to the uh, kind of 2010-2013 neighborhood. During that same time, there was almost this uh, identical decrease in the amount of primary androgen deprivation therapy. Radiation had some slow increases over time. But I see this on a relatively regular basis. You know, generationally, if uh, I'm seeing a patient as a second opinion uh, from a, a local urologist who may be a little bit older, um, they sometimes are told specifically, well, you have high-risk prostate cancer, you should not have surgery. Uh, you know, and they're, they're point, pointed towards either ADT uh, or radiation therapy. Um, but, you know, I think, as we'll discuss in a bit, there's more and more consideration about whether these patients may benefit from multimodal therapy, you know, prostatectomy, potentially followed by radiation therapy if needed. But I think it's good to know kind of what the population-based trends are, are doing. And then I think the other really important distinction is, you know, what we call patients as far as metastatic versus non-metastatic. Uh, because there clearly are differences in, in prognosis. And there's also, you know, some unknown, what is the real truth uh, about if a patient has microscopic metastatic disease or not. So one of my favorite uh, slides, Dr. Cooperberg had uh, alluded to this also. Um, so Paul Lang, when he was at the uh, University of Washington chairman for a long time, uh, talked about prostate cancer in the context of three different animals. So there's the turtle that's really slow. It doesn't move. It's probably not going to go anywhere. Those are the active surveillance patients that we're, we're okay just watching or the older patients that we're okay not doing anything. There's the rabbit, which is at, you know, increased risk of getting out of the cage there, jumping to lymph nodes, and then potentially jumping elsewhere. But there's also this bird or this eagle uh, that has go, moved so quickly uh, that it's getting to other areas of the body. Uh, so you can see Dr. Cooperberg's slide there. What we're really talking about with high-risk prostate cancer is can we distinguish those rabbits that are quickly moving but potentially controllable uh, versus the birds who have, uh, lack of a better term, already, you know, flown the coop. And so uh, I got into a little Google search last night. I will apologize for this video or this, uh, these uh, uh, pictures, but I said, you know, can you really distinguish between a, a bird, uh, you know, and a rabbit? And so there are a couple of uh, 
uh, internet uh, uh, photos of rabbit birds uh, or a Twitter uh, explosion over is this a bird or, or a rabbit. So if you get bored uh, during your uh, isolation, you can look at, at that. But these patients have overlap. Um, so if we talk initially about how do you distinguish who is uh, a metastatic versus a non-metastatic patient. So this is one paper that looked at uh, uh, guidelines as far as uh, what imaging to do. For local staging, we all know that MRI is going to be more valuable than uh, CT scan. For distant uh, regional staging, as far as uh, lymph nodes, CT or MRI are both options. I know in my personal practice, uh, which I kind of put there in, in purple, I tend to get an MRI, but I also, we have it protocoled uh, so that it's going higher up into the abdomen to also look at abdominal, you know, lymph nodes. So that's the prostate, lymph node, uh, you know, local distant staging, uh, but then you also want to keep in mind with high-risk patients uh, getting a bone scan. Uh, and I know in practice, a lot of the bone scans out in the community are just the nuclear medicine type. I know um, we have the ability here, if there's something that is in between, then the patient gets moved right down and they get a spec CT scan at the same time. Uh, and patients, you know, I saw one this week, they said, I had a bone scan, then they came back and did another scan, what was that all about? And that was the spec CT part, you know, so they can say, oh, this is definitively uh, you know, degenerative disease versus looks more suspicious. In, in most of our practices, uh, the use of uh, nuclear imaging PET scans is going to be relatively uncommon, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, here in the, in the slides coming up. If you're looking for a specific reference, this is a paper from uh, Crawford and the group that looked at the specific question of what imaging should you do in these types of patients, but we won't go into that in great depth. I did think it's helpful um, to kind of highlight this ambiguity with a specific patient example. So this patient, uh, we'll call him Mr. F. He was a 78-year-old gentleman, but very healthy. He had a PSA of 13.4. He did a, we had a standard biopsy, which was Gleason 6. However, we have discordant information. Uh, here, is this a low-risk patient, uh, you know, with a bigger prostate, or is this an intermediate-risk patient? So based on that ambiguity, obtained an MRI. Uh, that MRI showed a Pyrex 5, uh, relatively classic anterior uh, prostate, uh, you know, uh, lesion uh, that was suspicious and subsequently biopsied as Gleason uh, 3 plus 5. So now we identified this patient as in the high-risk group. In addition, the MRI had noted that there were some possible bone lesions, which was actually read as suspicious for uh, bone metastasis. We followed that up with uh, uh, an axiomen uh, PET scan, uh, which is specific for prostate cancer, and that verified that these bone lesions were suspicious or highly suspicious and talking to our radiologists. So ultimately this patient uh, was identified to have fairly definitive evidence of uh, systemic disease uh, and they were treated with androgen deprivation therapy and also uh, abiraterone for metastatic castrate sensitive prostate cancer. Um, there was some discussion of also doing radiation, uh, but the, uh, the radiation oncologist did not feel it would be uh, uh, helpful. Uh, this patient has been followed to date. Uh, PSA has been undetectable on uh, continued androgen deprivation therapy. But I highlight here in the reports, the take-home point, this patient's CT scan uh, was reported as normal, uh, and they also had a bone scan, a traditional bone scan, which was reported as normal. So if this was a patient you just evaluated with CT and bone scan, we'd be treating him as localized disease. Uh, however, with an MRI and with a, uh, an axiom and PET scan, uh, they were an entirely different you know, situation. So you wanna keep in mind these patients that just don't seem to quite fit uh, the appropriate scenario. Uh, and then now we'll jump into high-risk prostate cancer, looking at initial treatment and therapy for, for high-risk disease. So another question from one of the prior lectures, 
what level one evidence do we have for treatment of high-risk non-metastatic prostate cancer? Uh, so you can see this gentleman uh, protesting, what do we want evidence-based change? When do we want it? Of course, after peer review. Uh, and so uh, quite facetiously, uh, I would note uh, this uh, paper uh, that was uh, uh, published. There's kind of a, a joke version of the BMJ that comes out every year. Uh, but this paper had looked at uh, the use of parachutes and uh, had identified that there's been no randomized controlled trial level one evidence of the value of parachutes in preventing death when jumping from airplanes. So, um, you know, it's a little bit uh, flippant, uh, but that uh, that kind of idea, we have to keep in mind based on the fact that there have not been any large scale randomized trials of large volumes of high risk prostate cancer patients uh, treated versus observation, but there is some data in that space which we'll, we'll now kind of transition to, to talking about. So I'm a big advocate for uh, going to NCCN guidelines and AUA guidelines, and we'll talk about both of those specific uh, populations. And so uh, one thing that we, uh, uh, we keep in mind, uh, especially in this scenario, uh, is looking at life expectancy. And so uh, one of the things that's quite notable, if you look at NCCN guidelines for high risk uh, or very high risk prostate cancer, is we're not talking about a 10 year life expectancy that like we do talk about with screening, uh, but it's really looking at if a patient has a greater than five year life expectancy, uh, then considering uh, active treatment with radiation or prostatectomy, and we'll talk about those in detail, and only considering observation for patients with a less than five year life expectancy. And even in that space, there's still some discussion or an option of doing androgen deprivation therapy or radiation uh, in some patients. And so, uh, when we look at that scenario, uh, it's important to distinguish um, that five-year uh, time point, which I kind of alluded to here. But the other thing that uh, I would throw out there uh, that people should be familiar with is you can calculate someone's you know, life expectancy, uh, relatively straightforward method. You Google Social Security life uh, you know, tables, and if you look at when do men have a less than five-year life expectancy, it's not actually uh, until they get to the age of 87. And so I think what happens is the patients who happen to get to their 80s are healthy enough uh, that a number of them will still live a, a number of years beyond that. The other thing I would highlight uh, is that I did a little algebra. Uh, and there are guidelines, including an NCCN, if a patient is in the healthiest quartile for their age, then you can add an additional 50% to that life expectancy calculator. Uh, so uh, I verified this with my 12-year-old this morning, uh, but there's our algebra equation. And so if we take uh, a prediction of about 3.3 years, but it's the healthiest you know, quartile of those patients, it's not actually until you get to someone uh, around 92 or 93 where we would estimate that their life expectancy is less than five years. So I think there's certainly something counterintuitive about that concept. Um, but, you know, these are the numbers, this is actuarial data, you want to be aware of the fact that there may be some patients in their 70s or their 80s who may live, you know, 5, 10 years or even, even further. And so, if we look at this specific uh, treatment matrix uh, of, here are these patients with high-risk disease, should we give them radiation or should we uh, treat them with prostatectomy or, you know, why, why not just do nothing? Uh, it's important to note that there's not large-scale randomized controlled data about radiation, you know, versus, uh, uh, versus prostatectomy. Uh, it's worth noting um, where we do have, uh, you know, some, some data. And so um, Dr. Ristow uh, from Connecticut had talked about uh, the PROTECT trial, 
and that had included arms of active monitoring radiation prostatectomy. So this is exactly the type of population and the type of study that we need to answer this question. However, it's worth noting that at a median follow-up of 10 years, this study only had one to 2% prostate cancer mortality, and there were not a high amount of uh, high-grade uh, prostate cancer patients. Uh, and so it's really significantly underpowered uh, to tell us anything about high risk. And if you look at this paper, they specifically are not making any conclusions about you know, how to treat high-risk prostate cancer. The other main point I would highlight from this paper is at study entry, these patients were felt to have a greater than 10-year life expectancy. Uh, and if you look at the all-cause mortality at a follow-up of 10 years, it was quite low, which is what it should be. Uh, the number of patients who had died of any cause was about 10%. And so importantly, we're gonna contrast that later when we talk to, about PIVOT, which is predominantly done in the VA healthcare system. With PIVOT, the 10 to 12 year overall uh, mortality rate was 50%. And so you always have to keep that in mind uh, when you talk about uh, the PIVOT study and what you can generalize from that in the, uh, in the overall uh, you know, populations. And so you know, I think specifically here, um, we look and we say there were very few patients uh, who had Gleason score 8 to 10, uh, you know, only, uh, only 10 to 14 of them, uh, you know, and the majority of patients in this PROTECT trial had low-grade, low you know, Gleason 6 grade group 1 disease, and there's so few deaths that you really can't statistically or clinically comment uh, on high-risk treatment using the PROTECT, you know, randomized controlled data. So what can we do with observational data? Uh, I'll plug a paper that we looked at uh, when I was in fellowship. So we had a large group of patients treated at WashU or at Cleveland Clinic, and we had their survival outcomes. And so the concept we came out up with because we had a comorbidity assessment was let's take the healthiest patients who had no documented comorbidity at all, and let's compare them uh, and see what their outcomes were. And so the result of this study was if you used a traditional uh, Cox proportional hazard statistical model, it would tell you that surgery had a prostate cancer mortality benefit over radiation. So that's, as surgeons, what we like to hear. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, that may be the truth. Uh, but if you use a different uh, fine and grade competing risk analysis, a different statistical test there's no longer any difference. And so that tells you that if there's a difference, it potentially is subtle or maybe not even existent. The other thing that this study showed, and we'll show the cumulative incident plots here, um, keeping in mind the y-axis is somewhat truncated uh, to, to try to identify if there's a difference. But if you see in this study, the overall mortality curves, there was a overall mortality benefit uh, associated with uh, patients who had surgery compared to ha having radiation. However, you just cannot get away from the question of whether that is truly a surgical benefit or whether that's patient selection and there's some unmeasured comorbidity that we're not able to assess in this type of study. The other thing I would postulate is if cancer uh, treatment for high risk is actually better because of surgery, it's probably because the second line option with salvage or adjuvant radiation therapy is still with curative intent. And so if surgery is better, it's probably because of an increased use of radiation afterwards. 
in context to someone who gets primary radiation and then rarely goes on to get a salvage prostatectomy if there's recurrence. But I think this type of population-based data uh, is helpful to at least think about this question. So now if we jump from NCCN uh, to what AUA and ASTRO guidelines talk about, um, so there are a few uh, guideline statements. So combined urology and radiation associations got together uh, and they said that for you know, high-risk prostate cancer, uh, which is what this guideline statement is about, uh, clinicians should recommend either prostatectomy or radiation plus androgen deprivation therapy uh, for, for patients with high-risk prostate cancer. So we've talked about that, um, but we're going to talk a little bit about the data they allude to. And they're not recommending active surveillance uh, in this population, which makes sense to all of us. Uh, and they said watchful waiting, so doing nothing, should really only be considered uh, in asymptomatic men uh, who have a limited life expectancy. So this is in alignment with the discussion uh, in, in the NCCN guidelines. They also did not recommend um, some other, which are maybe more experimental at this point, uh, treatments uh, with cryotherapy or focal therapy or HIFU. Um, and specifically, they also call out that they don't recommend primary androgen deprivation therapy as the only treatment unless the patient has a limited uh, life expectancy uh, in, in symptoms and you're just trying to, to palliate in that space. So I took one more deeper dive into that and said, you know, from this guideline statement, what's the data that uh, they are alluding to? And so um, what was noted for this recommendation in favor of uh, active treatment was a couple of things. Uh, one was the SPCG4 uh, trial, uh, which was the Scandinavian randomized trial uh, looking at the benefit uh, that was seen uh, with uh, uh, surgery uh, compared to observation. Uh, and the other part that they looked at and commented about uh, was that there was not an overall survival benefit in the PIVOT study. Uh, however, if you looked in the high-risk patient population group, uh, it did appear that there were potentially less uh, bone metastasis. And specifically, and I've got a slide on this coming up, if you look at high-risk men, the rate of prostate cancer mortality in that um, group was actually significantly lower, 9.1% versus 17.5% uh, in observation. So you always have to be careful if you have a large randomized trial about over-interpreting the subgroup analysis, but that's what they're uh, talking about in this, uh, in this situation. Um, you know, and when they say, why not just watch, this is kind of the counter uh, version of the same data and the same reasoning uh, that we just talked about. Um, and then uh, we'll kind of slide by this one because the palliation and, and you know, ADT kind of makes sense. But if we look and we dive now into this specific uh, data on what is the specific data to favor uh, prostatectomy in these patients, um, you know, what was alluded to uh, was the, the Scandinavian trial uh, and also um, knowing that these patients are, are very high risk. And so we're going to jump slightly into the, the PIVOT trial, uh, which uh, Dr. Ristow had, uh, had talked about. Um, so this is observation versus radical prostatectomy, predominantly in the VA healthcare system. And so in this group, uh, and I included Ben's uh, slides there, uh, along with some uh, figures from the actual paper, we keep in mind in this population, only 21% of patients were high risk, only 48% were intermediate or high risk. Um, in, as far as Gleason score. And so the minority of patients were high risk in this study. Um, but if you look at their forest plots, they did identify for patients with a PSA above 10 that there was a survival benefit with prostatectomy. Uh, they also uh, commented on 
a potentially uh, significant interaction between risk group and treatment. And as you can see, the intermediate uh, and high risk hazard ratio, the box is favoring prostatectomy, but it's that the confidence intervals are relatively wide because of a lack of uh, statistical uh, power due to limited, limited numbers. But if you go and dive into this paper, which I've kind of done for you here, um, they do talk uh, about these relationships that we just uh, had, uh, had alluded to, and then specifically talked about um, with high-risk uh, tumors, there was a reduction in mortality by about 6.7% uh, percentage points, that's the box in the right, but it just was not statistically significant, um, either because of lack of true effect or because of sample size issues. Um, and if we look at the prostate cancer uh, death rate, uh, which we alluded to, uh, this is the, the visual uh, formation of it, uh, you see that for high-risk prostate cancer patients, so uh, the one that's right here by my arrow, uh, there is a 40% risk reduction, actually a 60% hazard ratio is down to 0.4, risk reduction in prostate cancer mortality, and that's right at about the 0 0.04, 0 0.05 uh, level. Uh, and you say, from, these NC, from the AUA statement, where did that 9.1% versus 70.5% uh, you know, data come from with decreased prostate cancer mortality? Uh, this is the actual portion of the paper uh, that talks about it uh, specifically. And so what about the Scandinavian trial? What can we uh, learn about it from respect to high-risk uh, prostate cancer? The thing I would note with this study is it also is underpowered in high-risk patient populations. And the authors in the most recent form, uh, which was published in 2018, uh, I actually took a look again at this uh, last night, and they don't really call out the high-risk population here. And when there's a, a letter to the editor afterwards kind of inquiring about risk group, uh, subgroup analysis, they specifically say, you know, they've repeatedly cautioned in this article and other articles that subgroup analysis are exploratory uh, and have low statistical precision. So part of that came from a cutoff, uh, you know, benefit was largest in patients less than uh, the age of 65 in this study. Uh, and so I think that group kind of backed away uh, some previous statements about um, whether age is sort of a, a subgroup cutoff or uh, whether um, high-risk patients should be a, 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 you know, that subgroup analysis is valid. If you do look back, and Ben had had uh, this data in his, uh, uh, in this slide, if you look back at their 2014 analysis, they did not statistically see that there was a benefit in the high-risk population. It appeared to be that the driving factor was benefit of prostatectomy in the intermediate risk, uh, you know, patient population. But the authors had discussed about how this doesn't really fit with what is kind of thought clinically and with pivot but they had noted that this was a very high risk uh, population as far as the risk of micrometastatic disease in, uh, in Scandinavia. They had not been pre-screened you know, screened with PSA. And so they commented that it may be because of that higher rate of micrometastasis um, that they're not seeing a benefit here. But it's worth noting that when they published an update, they entirely went away from trying to make uh, any statement about high risk versus intermediate risk in this population. So, you know, Part of uh, uh, data is, is anecdotal too. So I put yourself in, in the shoes of the surgeon. So what are you gonna do with this patient? So 63 year old African-American patient had never had a PSA before. Uh, and this was actually relatively early in my practice, about 2013. 
So he came in, PSA was 41.63. We rechecked, it was 54.23. We staged him. He had no evidence of disease elsewhere. And I remember this one specifically. Uh, you know, I reached out to a few colleagues uh, from training and, and elsewhere and said, hey, do you have an upper limit for where you don't do a, a prostatectomy? And the most common response is, well, in the appropriate patient, there's not exactly an upper limit. Uh, and so what we did uh, for this patient is we went ahead and did a, a prostatectomy. Uh, he ended up, despite that high PSA, only having a Gleason uh, uh, 4 plus 3 disease. Uh, and um, his pathology uh, was T3N0. Uh, as we note there, um, did have a positive bladder neck margins, but all other margins were negative. He had 11 pelvic lymph nodes, which were negative. So the PSA after surgery was undetectable. Um, we talked about the option of doing radiation therapy, uh, but we kind of combined uh, a discussion to say, well, let's just follow uh, closely. And to date, he's had no evidence of PSA recurrence. Uh, that was 2013, now we're to 2020, his PSA has continued to be undetectable. And so, you know, not all high-risk prostate cancer surgeries go like this, and you wanna have uh, kind of lowered expectations in that patient population. But there are some cases like this where it appears this guy clearly benefited uh, from having surgery and had relatively low morbidity related to that. And so I'll just kind of leave this here. I'll share my slides afterwards uh, with the, uh, the group and the website. But what I do, you know, when I have these patients where I feel like I'm really looking at things in depth, uh, I, you know, I have a good uh, plan documented, uh, then I'll make a smart phrase so I have that available to me uh, down the road. And specifically, um, I pulled this one back up, uh, you know, as I'm doing this talk. You know, if you look for data for doing a prostatectomy and PSA above 50, you don't find a lot of it. Um, but there were a couple of examples kind of in the middle of that smart phrase there uh, where there was some anecdotal experience with uh, patients with uh, a PSA above 100 who had a prostatectomy. Uh, and then, you know, the outcomes are, are listed there that the cancer-specific survival, even in that patient population uh, with a moderate follow-up of about six years, uh, was about 88%, so only about 12% of patients had died of prostate cancer in that, in that population. And so you want to keep in mind as you're, you're counseling patients uh, sort of in these unusual type scenarios, what's out there, and also uh, discussing, you know, uh, what, are, what are realistic expectations. Um, so real quickly, because uh, 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 Dr. Ristow had done a great job with this, uh, as far as with radiation therapy, if patients opt to go that route, uh, it is combined with androgen deprivation therapy. Uh, this is a tremendous uh, summary of the data, so I'm not going to reiterate much here. Um, but basically, is that high-risk patients should also have, uh, you know, two to three years of androgen deprivation therapy. Um, so, in looking at some of these guideline statements, is actually an interesting thing to say. Well, what's the benefit of doing, you know, this treatment uh, versus doing nothing? And so, one of the points they'll make is that these studies all showed a survival benefit of additional androgen deprivation therapy beyond just radiation therapy. So you would then postulate that patients who had no treatment would do even worse than those patients who had no radiation or who had radiation in uh, you know short course of androgen deprivation therapy. So it's extrapolated uh, level one evidence, uh, but there's at least some evidence uh, you know, to kind of justify uh, treating uh, patients uh, who have a greater than five year you know, life expectancy. Um, I'm gonna just leave this one here. Uh, because uh, there's not a, a lot of uh, specific data available uh, for surgeons in patients who have uh, regional risk group disease. Uh, so lymph node uh, enlargement. So if you look at what the NCCN guidelines uh, state, they really talk about using radiation uh, in those uh, patients or consideration of uh, abiraterone uh, for, for patients. 
you know, I think in clinical practice, there are many of us that if there is a small-ish uh, uh, one centimeter, one and a half centimeter indeterminate node uh, that we will definitely consider surgery because some of those nodes are negative uh, and we don't want to necessarily exclude patients from surgery in that context. Uh, there also is um, data that I won't really get into, but um, uh, there's a, a swab study uh, Brian Chapin is, is, uh, is leading looking at is there a benefit of prostatectomy in patients with low volume metastatic disease, be it either lymph node involvement uh, or um, low volume of bony disease, um, but this is really uh, kind of a, a patient population that these, these patients, if they're going to be treated with a prostatectomy, it's probably best to be uh, treated, you know, in the context of a, uh, of a clinical trial. Um, and so this is in patients with metastatic disease, um, so outside the topic that we're talking about, but that's where that prior slide data comes from, is that patients who had low volume metastatic disease uh, appeared to benefit uh, from abiraterone uh, and including uh, radiation in some of those patients. So that's really where that prior um, uh, data uh, comes from is, is this study that, that showed um, a potential benefit called Stampede uh, in patients with low volume uh, metastatic disease. So we're going to transition here about the next five minutes or so, maybe a little bit more, into what about now you have chosen surgery uh, you know, or radiation, uh, and um, should a patient then receive additional adjuvant therapy? Uh, this is specifically in the surgical population. Um, and so the important concept, uh, you know, to keep in mind is you're looking at different time periods. So neoadjuvant would be something before surgery. Adjuvant is in the period after surgery, specifically for adjuvant radiation therapy after prostatectomy. The data is really looking at within 17, 18 weeks after surgery versus salvage radiation therapy, uh, which is done, you know, down the road. Uh, and so in the context of that study, uh, here's an annotated slide from the NCCN guidelines. So if you do a prostatectomy uh, and there are adverse features, so we're talking about PT3N0 disease uh, or maybe T2 disease with positive margins, that there's condition uh, consideration of adjuvant radiation therapy versus observation in that group. We'll also talk about if lymph nodes are positive, there's consideration of androgen deprivation therapy, radiation therapy versus observation. What's important to note is there's not currently a neoadjuvant therapy uh, for these high-risk prostate cancer patients. The study has been done in general for prostate cancer patients, giving androgen deprivation therapy before surgery. That did not have a survival benefit. It just decreased the rate of positive surgical margins. That's a very classic in-service uh, test uh, question. So we don't do androgen deprivation therapy uh, in, that, in that population. The other trial that's currently kind of pending has been reported at meetings, but I looked again last night and didn't see that it has been published yet, is looking at docetaxel before um, prostatectomy in high-risk patients. Uh, there, there appears to be some favorable uh, data with that population, but it just has not been uh, uh, fully evaluated and, and published yet. So let's talk specifically about this adverse uh, patient group. So I uh, have our residents, uh, if you're going to know one SWOG study and one, one set of numbers, it's SWOG8794. So these are patients with T3N0 disease, and they were randomized to either getting adjuvant radiation therapy within 16 weeks of surgery versus observation. And keeping in mind early salvage radiation therapy was not evaluated. So they weren't comparing radiation uh, you know, right away compared to radiation six months later if the PSA is detectable. But this was really doing radiation versus really not doing it 
uh, at all or very late, late down the road. And so this T3N0 population, initial paper actually did not show survival benefit, but this follow-up evaluation from Ian Thompson at 12.7 years uh, showed that there was a metastasis-free survival benefit of adjuvant radiation therapy for T3N0 disease. And there was also um, in patients who had a detectable versus undetectable PSA. So this is your justification. If you have T3N0 disease, PSA is still undetectable. You still have the option of offering those patients radiation therapy. And most importantly, that showed that there was a survival benefit uh, in adjuvant radiation therapy versus just watching things, which is shown there. And then the other um, question is, uh, uh, is whether to combine that, that radiation therapy uh, with androgen deprivation therapy. So my practice uh, had been to not give androgen deprivation therapy. We just give radiation, we see if the PSA comes down. However, this all changed with uh, Shipley publication in 2017, at least in my practice. They showed that if you combine two years of radiation, uh, of androgen deprivation therapy with the radiation, that there was a significant survival advantage in the prostate cancer mortality uh, decreased from 13.4% down to 5.8%. So for me, this randomized controlled trial, New England Journal 2017, uh, kind of abruptly changed my practice uh, in that, that patient population. If I give adjuvant radiation therapy or I give uh, early salvage radiation therapy, I'm promoting androgen deprivation therapy uh, in most patients, um, but keeping in mind that if they don't tolerate it, it potentially you know, can, be, uh, can be stopped. So we're going to switch to a slightly different patient population here. So this is patients that have node positive disease uh, with, your, with your prostatectomy. Um, so we always refer to it as the messing data. So node positive patients who were randomized to either get androgen deprivation therapy versus observation uh, starting you know, soon after uh, surgery. The patient follow-up was kind of at a medium level as far as 7.1 years. Uh, and keeping in mind, most of these patients had kind of one or two positive nodes. And so what they found was there was a pretty significant difference in clinical progression, which is shown here, which is really defined by CT scan, bone scan, radiographic imaging. Um, and importantly though, is that there was an overall survival benefit and a prostate cancer survival benefit. And these curves look almost identical. So what that tells us is the driving factor in this patient population probably younger folks that, were, that received surgery was their prostate cancer mortality. You're just simply not seeing a lot of other cause mortality. So this is the justification uh, for node positive patients uh, to start uh, you know, androgen deprivation therapy in this situation lifelong. And that's really a, a, what I at least discuss and talk to patients and show them this, uh, this messing data that with androgen deprivation therapy, uh, you know, in a cohort of about 50 patients, only three of them on androgen deprivation therapy uh, died of prostate cancer uh, compared to 16 in the observation group. So at least warrants discussion. However, transitioning, what's really being done in practice, uh, population-based data in node-positive prostatectomy patients. So you see from that box there, over half of patients are treated with observation alone, um, uh, about a quarter receive androgen deprivation alone. In a selected population, about 20% receive androgen deprivation therapy and radiation. And I think at least those latter, the, the last portion there, the multimodal treatment approach uh, warrants consideration. Um, this is retrospective data that these patients, most of them had one positive node. So what do you do with low volume patients? 
they found that you know it's hard to control it's not randomized but patients who received radiation and androgen deprivation therapy for node positive prostate cancer had a survival advantage compared to the other groups uh, and you can see the um, survival curves there are different we still have to keep in mind there potentially is an issue of unadjusted you know confounding in this population uh, but at least there's population-based data to recommend being um, aggressive in patients uh, in that situation um, so finish up the last few minutes here I'll talk about biochemical recurrence I think it's important for everybody to know the definition and so specifically in this slide here um, our typical definition AUA definition of biochemical recurrence is a PSA above 0.2 the concept being a very low PSA below that might be benign prostate cells. If you look at the NCCN definition, they actually talk about detectable PSA, which is then um, subsequently detectable and increases on repeat checks. So NCCN definition of biochemical recurrence, recurrence after prostatectomy may actually be talking about patients who are not at 0.2. For radiation, uh, it's really um, the lowest PSA plus uh, 2.0 above that, which is called the Phoenix criteria. Uh, and so, you know, I think we'll leave this mostly uh, as available uh, for, a, for a reference, but we'll kind of summarize uh, in patients who have, uh, you know, uh, biochemical recurrence after prostatectomy, you want to consider repeat imaging in those patients. Uh, and then we've already talked about the potential benefit of radiation plus uh, two years of androgen deprivation therapy. If they have distant disease in that metastatic workup, then obviously they're treated with systemic therapy. Um, and so, if you look at this uh, study that uh, looked at, at cancer control, which I think was relevant, if you look at overall, this is probably a low risk population predominantly, um, but the failure uh, to control cancer, they defined it as a detectable PSA at all, was about 12% at, at two years in a pretty low risk you know, population. But what you saw is that patients that had a detectable PSA, if you follow them over time, that they're about as likely to die of prostate cancer as they are to die of other causes. And so we really have to, as urologists, be able to flip from the mindset of, well, prostate cancer may not really be a significant disease for low-grade you know, patients. We talk about active surveillance or doing nothing. You have to be able to flip into this different mindset that a patient with biochemical recurrence is potentially at risk of prostate cancer mortality, and it may be e equal to their other risks of mortality. And so um, flipping over to patient had radiation and they have recurrence. Um, those are patients that you're considering, uh, you know, you're looking to see if they have distant disease. If not, there may be some patients who receive salvage uh, radical prostatectomy that are very highly selected. The reason for that being the risk of, uh, of rectal injury is higher after radiation with salvage prostatectomy. And also, I uh, don't go into the data, but there's a relatively high PSA recurrence rate after salvage prostatectomy or salvage cryotherapy. And so you wanna have realistic expectations that they may have micrometastatic disease elsewhere in the body, uh, which you're not knowing about at that context. Um, and then talk just really briefly, we wanna keep in mind uh, that if patients don't have documented uh, metastatic disease, uh, but their PSA is rising despite uh, androgen deprivation therapy, so they're castrate resistant prostate cancer, there are a number of medications, apalutamide, darolutamide, enzalutamide that are now approved in that space if their PSA is rising uh, quickly. Um, so those are patients we always used to be watching, but now there's medication in patients who are non-metastatic but, but castrate resistance. So let's review what we covered. Are we in line with what the AUA and ASTRO uh, guidelines talk about? So notably, these uh, guidelines came out and they were updated in 2018, 2019. 
And so first guideline statement, uh, talk about the potential need for multimodal therapy. We discussed that. Guideline statement two is patients who have higher risk disease, you should consider um, the option of doing uh, additional radiation therapy. We discussed, or dis discussed that. I think in my practice, most of the folks I've worked with, we will discuss the option of adjuvant radiation therapy. But my general practice is if the PSA is undetectable, the pathology is relatively favorable, say T3N0, but negative margins, negative nodes, we may be considering watching those patients but having a very early trigger for doing salvage radiation therapy. But that's one spot there's specific practice variability. Keep in mind, if you radiate every T3N0 patient, you're gonna overtreat some patients, you're gonna run into side effect uh, issues more commonly. Uh, if you don't treat anyone, then you're going to potentially risk your, cure, your chance for cure in some patients. So um, other statements talk about the chance of uh, PSA recurrence and that that's a bad thing. Yep, we talked about that, uh, that we should know the biochemical recurrence definitions. Uh, we're aware of that. Um, and then they talked about uh, staging uh, patients uh, with PSA recurrence should be considered, but I would change that to, to done and advocate it. You want to uh, radiographically work up patients with recurrence uh, and then offering, uh, you know, salvage radiation therapy uh, in, in patients. And so we've covered most of that, um, that there's a general concept that we're better off radiating patients if their PSA is, is 0.2 compared to 2.2. Uh, and we want to consider earlier radiation as, as salvage there. Um, and then this guideline statement was updated with the androgen deprivation Shipley data that we talked about. Uh, and then this last statement really just balancing the benefits from a cancer control standpoint versus a potential risk. So I'm gonna do one minute uh, on biochemical recurrence. You could have a whole hour on this, but I'm just gonna give you what my perception is of imaging. And so specifically this patient uh, was somebody who had a prostatectomy locally, uh, and then he had rising PSA, all the details are there, but basically got salvage radiation therapy locally two years from surgery, but his PSA continued to rise up to 1.17. So he came for evaluation. We did imaging. He ended up with an axiomen PET scan. So that's an FDA approved uh, uh, PET scan for biochemical recurrence. We also had a research protocol that was open uh, for using a PSMA, non-FDA approved research, uh, uh, but probably a little better PET scan. Uh, most people feel that. And so he had disease in one lymph node in the pelvis, we show the pictures there, and had kind of this indeterminate uh, uptake uh, in his uh, lungs that our radiologist felt was most likely negative. So we said, well, let's go ahead and do a salvage pelvic lymph node dissection uh, after prior prostatectomy and prior radiation. Uh, so did the surgery, we could actually visibly see the node uh, and then see another node next to it. Uh, we really tried to clean out the whole pelvis and ended up with 36 lymph nodes, two of which were positive. Uh, identifying that lymph node that we saw on scan. And literally in my mind is that this is the way we're gonna change high-risk prostate cancer treatment uh, because we're gonna save all these patients. Uh, Pre-op PSA for 1.17. Uh, unfortunately, post-op PSA barely budge. Uh, and so patient was actually okay with this because we had talked about the specific chance we may not do anything uh, that's beneficial in the space, but we can get the lymph nodes out with limited morbidity. And then subsequently, his PSA continued to rise. Um, he ended up getting a choline PET scan, showed increased uptake in the lungs, uh, and subsequently was treated with androdefrication therapy and docetaxel. So in the past, we very rarely discussed prostate cancer to the lungs, uh, but this is an example, and there's other ones out there, of 
prostate cancer clearly going to the lungs. And so the take home message that I would, I would say, I'll leave these slides here for reference, um, but I would note uh, that there's continued issues with small lymph nodes. This is Dr. Pollard, one of our radiation, uh, or issue because we don't know if they're positive or if they're benign. There's a number of different agents available. Uh, and for what you need to know right now is that an axiom and PET scan is FDA approved and typically covered by insurance for patients who have biochemical recurrence. So that's typically defined as a PSA above 0.2, you know, after prostatectomy. So this is something that in our typical uh, kind of uh, armamentarium now as far as uh, ways to uh, evaluate these patients. Um, but what we keep in mind, even though this is FDA approved, uh, is the issue that for low PSAs, it's not very accurate at finding, uh, you know, disease. And so if we contrast that to PSMA, uh, which is widely used in Europe, uh, now available in the U.S. just on research protocols, we're one of 10 or 12 different places that are looking at PSMA testing for biochemical recurrence and also high-risk prostate cancer patients. Uh, and PSMA is probably a better test um, to identify and look at recurrence, but it's just not FDA approved currently. This is the one slide I think to be aware of. If, if the PSA is less than one, a choline PET or a axiomin, uh, which is the flucicoline uh, PET, has a very low chance of showing something, but the PSMA might. Uh, and so there are some specific patients where we're, we're kind of waiting until the PSA is around, uh, you know, a little bit higher to see if we find something or not, but this is uh, really patient specific. And this is a, a, a graph that Janet had put together. If the PSA is low, you're probably not going to find anything with a choline or an axiomin, you know, PET scan. Uh, and so uh, her take-home points are there, but this is clearly the direction we're going to be moving um, and, uh, you know, an area of very active study. You know, ideally within ho hopefully the next two to three years, PSMA may be approved, and I think that's going to be the one that's potentially a, more of a game changer. One slide just for reference is high-risk prostate cancer patients who are metastatic or regionally advanced. Now NCCN does, does provide guidance uh, in doing uh, uh, genetic testing in those patients, uh, potentially with somatic testing of the, of the specimen, you know, also. Specific driving factor for that is that patients that are BR, B, BRCA positive, uh, there now are a group of medications that are used in, in potentially metastatic disease in that, uh, in that patient population. So actually genetics may be changing uh, how we change and, and uh, manage some of these patients. So, all right, and I'm sure Justin uh, has some, uh, some questions for us, and um, I know we're running up on our time, but I'm happy to uh, answer uh, a few more questions, maybe run a little bit over since I'm sure there's uh, looks like a little bit of an active chat. All right, Dr. Nepple, thank you very much uh, for the great talk. It was a lot of excellent information. Uh, there are a few questions. I think uh, one I'd like to start with, I think ties nicely the middle of your talk to the end of your talk, and it was regarding your case from 2013 with the 63-year-old gentleman. Uh, the question is, um, you know, I guess if you could fast forward to, to today and uh, FDA recommendations aside, you know, would PSMA have a role in assessing for need for adjuvant radiation, or would you still wait until biochemical recurrence prior to considering adjuvant radiation in that patient? Sure. I think I'll, I'll answer that in two contexts. One is what we're able to do, you know, right now. And so what we keep in mind right now is I can get an exhuman PET scan paid for if the PSA is 0.2. And so if the PSA was 0.1 and the patient had high-risk pathology, then I'm really contemplating, do I want to wait until the PSA is 0.2, knowing that it's probably only going to show something 5, 10, 15% of the times. And so there might be some, some patients where 
if they don't want to jump right towards um, adjuvant or early salvage radiation therapy, maybe they're still having some recovery of incontinence uh, uh, or there's other reasons, then I will talk to them about, well, okay, once we get to point two, then we're going to get an axiomen PET scan and we're going to have that drive what our, our treatment is. Um, there are some scans that will show, um, I just have a patient uh, managing this week, his, uh, his axiomen scan showed a small bone lesion, about eight millimeters. Uh, and so I had, to, had radiology try to biopsy it. They said it's too small. Uh, and um, they said, get an MRI. If it's enhancing, it's suspicious. And so that patient, um, we're going to have a tumor board discussion about, but most likely we're going to be looking at directed radiation to that bone lesion in the pelvis, plus or minus uh, you know, prostate bed pelvic radiation, uh, potentially combined with angiodeprivation deprivation therapy. So in the current context, um, you know, the, almost nobody's going to be willing to pay for an axiomen out of, out of pocket. Um, we, we had a heyday uh, and filled uh, our PSMA protocol up very, very quickly uh, when we had that for the biochemical recurrence uh, patients. Um, I think it was uh, helpful in guiding uh, management uh, that was appropriate. You would see occasionally a patient who had no uh, disease in the pelvis but had a couple of spine lesions. And so rather than treat with pelvic radiation, uh, they're potentially getting systemic therapy plus bone-directed radiation to the uh, to the spine. And so PSMA, uh, I think, is going to be great, uh, but it's currently not available. And I think our, we're working on a protocol for out-of-pocket testing, which is probably going to be, you know, in the neighborhood of $2,500 or something like that. And so, again, you know, for the very low PSA, if my PSA was 0.2, um, I don't know that I would necessarily pay out-of-pocket to get a PSMA. Um, but once it's available and covered, uh, then, you know, it's going to be, uh, I think, part of all, all of our, our, uh, uh, our, our sort of information that, that we look at. I think the other real quick point is we also have to keep in mind with these, uh, these tracers uh, in advanced imaging that they're not always accurate. I've had a number of patients who had uh, positive bone lesions called on uh, MRI of the prostate. I uh, got a bone scan that was negative. We said, we probably think this is not disease. It's probably a false positive. Uh, and then if you do their prostatectomy, their PSA is undetectable. You say, great, uh, that the radiology wasn't right. But we really have to consider on a patient-by-patient -patient basis, you know, if you were to get, for example, theoretically a PSMA uh, before surgery, and there was a tiny lymph node high up in the abdomen, another small lymph node in the pelvis, are we going to exclude those patients from the attempt at local control um, because of possible radiographic disease elsewhere? So I think those, that's something that's clearly... Uh, going to be an active area of research and, and discussion. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, one more question here. Uh, can you give ADT for borderline axiomen PET scans, so whether it's uh, borderline for positive or negative, assess the response after ADT, and then maybe make a better determination on whether or not there was a true MET there? Yeah. And so, um, you know, one of the benefits uh, I was going to mention early on, but I, I worked with uh, Dr. Williams, who was, who's had been here for uh, 25 years. And so, uh, he would almost never uh, refer his patients to locally for follow-up. So his clinics would be full of these patients who had 5, 10, 15, 20 years of, of follow-up. So you see all these different patterns. And back then we would have uh, was Prostasync, which was also PSMA, but intramembrane, uh, intracytoplasmic version uh, of the uh, binding. So it was a very limited study. Uh, but there were some patients where you would think you see something and then you do Andrew deprivation therapy and you see if it responds. So there are some select patients where we, we do that. Um, the most recent one um, I would, uh, uh, that comes to mind uh, was, you know, you're really deciding based on that PSMA 
uh, or you know, more commonly the axiomen uh, or other imaging, if you're treating a patient as systemic or localized disease. And I still fall back on my clinical judgment oftentimes in those patients. Uh, if they're, you know, Gleason 7 disease and their PSA is 9 and it's thought that they might have a bone lesion, you know, you can say that's probably relatively unlikely. And so there's some patients like that we do treat, you know, with surgery or radiation with curative intent, you know, specifically on the androgen deprivation plus radiation option, then you can see if those lesions respond. And if they don't change, then it's probably not disease. Um, but you're never 100% accurate in that space. But the combination of repeat radiographic imaging plus what their PSA uh, does, um, I think does potentially point us in the, in the right direction. Good deal. And then uh, can you comment briefly, uh, what are your thoughts on deferring adjuvant radiation to allow for better outcomes, specifically regarding continence or erectile dysfunction, instead of opting for early salvage XRT? And I've heard you talk about this in clinic, but maybe you could give a little comment on your personal practice. Yeah, yeah. The, the request to comment briefly, I, I can never do that, uh, but I'll, I'll give you a few thoughts that jump into my head. So, you know, I think that's definitely part of the, the consideration, um, is that people are still healing. Uh, and for a long time, it was discussion of if you do radiate, you're going to freeze them into where they are. Um, I would point people towards uh, that SWOG Thompson, uh, uh, you know, SWOG 8794 study. There are also studies looking at uh, quality of life outcomes after adjuvant versus observation. The surprising thing from that was that it didn't appear that the continence was heavily uh, impacted um, and there was a higher rate of uh, bladder neck contractures. But, you know, I think in this situation, we can all feel like we're being oncologically safe uh, in potentially monitoring the PSA, you know, closely and allowing some time for, for recovery. And so I think you have that kind of um, potential win-win of giving the patient some time to recover uh, and then seeing what their, their PSA does. Um, but, you know, what that means for my specific practice is there's very few patients that I give adjuvant radiation therapy uh, unless they're clearly very high, uh, you know, pathologic risk and, and their PSA is, is higher than we want, you know, after, uh, after surgery. But you know, I, think, I think whoever asked that question is, is right on top of it as far as you want to take all this into, uh, you know, into account. And I think specifically the young patient uh, who is starting to get back partial erections and starting to get back to their life and they have an undetectable PSA, um, you know, it's a little bit hard. You would almost have to uh, arm wrestle that patient uh, into getting radiation and committing to that, you know, six, seven week treatment plan uh, when they're just starting to feel normal, uh, more normal, new, new normal, uh, and they're just starting to get their, their erections back. So I think you want to at least inform patients of what the data is, but say, hey, you know, we have this alternative option where we may give you some additional time uh, to be a normal person before we, we put you back into a, a daily, uh, being a, a patient on a daily basis. Sure thing. Well, I know we're a few minutes over. Uh, do you want to keep going? We can post the rest of these questions on the website if you like. Yeah, let's do, let's do like maybe one or two. Sure. All right. So then there's one more. It's a little bit more relevant for uh, today, um, today's times. But a candidate for a radical prostatectomy with a PSA greater than 50, um, if this patient you know, in the future were to be delayed for surgery greater than six months because of something like COVID, um, would you start ADT while you're waiting for this patient to have surgery? Yeah, that's a good, a good point. And, uh, you know, my, my hobby uh, for a little while was listening to podcasts on uh, telehealth and also on, uh, you know, urologic management of COVID. And I think everyone um, felt 
that those are the types of patients that most commonly we're still proceeding with surgery. You know, in, in the state of Iowa, we determine, you know, term that as essential surgery and we're able to do that. Um, but multiple different folks on podcasts talked about if you could not do surgery, then that certainly is a patient uh, that could be temporized with, uh, uh, with androgen deprivation uh, you know, therapy. And so I've heard that from multiple different folks. And I know that was my uh, kind of uh, uh, impression too. I know Sam Chang specifically was uh, on one of the AUA podcasts and talked about that. So I think that would certainly be a relevant thing. And if I was that patient, I would at least um, get some peace of mind you know, with that. Good deal. Um, you want one more? Sure. Okay. Uh, yeah, it looks like we still have like 40 people on. So people can feel free to jump off if they want, but, uh, but, but I got nothing but, but time to look at your mustache. <laughs> Good deal. Yeah, thank you for the, the mustache shout out. Um, so this is a, a case-based question, but this is a, a case regarding a 73-year-old healthy gentleman with a Pyrads 5 lesion on MRI. Um, looks like uh, prostate biopsy has eight of 13 cores are positive for just grade group one um, with no symptoms, but the PSA continues to increase from 13 to 18 within three months. And so is this a patient you would consider uh, uh, prostatectomy on or would you favor ADT and uh, EBIC? Yeah, so that, that's a patient I would be talking about active treatment, you know, the discussion being either surgery versus is radiation. The way I phrase it that I think is effective is if patients potentially don't want to do something, um, I'll talk to them about who the ideal candidate for active surveillance is. And so the ideal candidate is a patient who has, you know, Gleason 6, but it's two or fewer cores. They have left in, less than 50%, you know, core involvement, and their PSA is less than 10, you know. So once you're into that PSA, you know, 13 and rising, it might just be related to inflammation or it might be related to uh, prostate enlargement. In those patients, you know, you have a, a PSA size or a prostate size uh, from your MRI. It's good to use PSA density also. Um, but they're the folks I would talk to about how I just feel nervous that we might miss the window for, uh, for cure. Um, I try not to use that, that cure word, um, but I think there are patients in my practice who go both ways. There's folks who really don't want to do treatment, and so we're watching them closely. I'm much more comforted by the fact that I have a good MRI uh, and I have a good fusion biopsy uh, compared to if, if I don't. And so in that patient, I wouldn't absolutely twist their arm that they're going to shorten their life because of that. Um, but, you know, I think that those are the ones that you really want to have an active discussion uh, in sort of uh, um, to some extent, you know, commit. There's also in that specific patient population um, where people are on the fence, that is where um, I will uh, consider using uh, adjuvant pathologic, uh, you know, classifier tests, um, such as Decipher, Oncocyte, uh, Polaris is another one. Um, but I'll go into it and tell the patient, hey, let's do this test, but let's only do it if it's going to change what our, our management is. And so we'll kind of draw out uh, a plan and say, okay, if this shows that you're in the high risk category or, or higher intermediate risk category, then is it going to prompt us to do active treatment? Uh, you know, versus watch if it's if it's in the lower risk category. And so um, I will only do those if it's really going to change what we do, because otherwise there's better ways to spend, you know, two thousand or twenty two hundred bucks uh, in that in that neighborhood. Okay, good. Yeah, let's do let's do one or two more. Uh, we're still people are still hanging in there. Impressive. 
Okay, the last question we have on here actually uh, is, uh, so for patients, I think you may have talked about this on, in your talk a little bit, but maybe you could clarify. Um, for patients who have uh, prostatectomy and then have uh, biochemical recurrence and undergo radiation, uh, what PSA cutoffs are you using to follow these patients afterwards, given that they've had both? Sure. And so it's, it's an important point. One I was, um, I thought about making, but I didn't, which is a little off topic, uh, is that um, I don't trust anyone, uh, you know, who's not a urologist to follow a patient's PSA. There's some patients that I, I'm fine if they follow up with their local urologist, but I've just seen anecdotally too many examples of patients post-prostatectomy who their PSA is 0 0.2, 0 0.4, 0 0.6, you know, and it's just clicked off as a normal result from their primary care provider just because it's not on, on their radar. Um, but the, the point you get at there um, is that if you have radiation for biochemical recurrence, let's say the PSA is 0.3. So back when I was doing, uh, you know, and seeing 10 years worth of patients in Dr. Williams Clinic uh, who had had radiation only, you really want to see their PSA go to completely undetectable with radiation uh, alone. And that would be a marker um, that they had pelvic disease and that you potentially are, are going to cure them. Um, but I would say for certain, even if you just did androgen deprivation therapy, their PSA should go to completely undetectable. And for sure, if you're combining salvage radiation and ADT, their PSA should be undetectable. The people that drop down, you know, from 0.3 down to 0.1, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell them, you know, hey, we talked about two years of androgen deprivation therapy, but I can kind of predict based on how things are going that your PSA may plateau but then may start to rise. And so in those patients, um, if their PSA, you know, plateaus and then is rising, those are folks you're considering keeping on androgen deprivation therapy for a longer period of time. Uh, and then you're looking to see if they're developing castrate-resistant prostate cancer. And it may be, you know, the, the typical uh, CRPC definition is a PSA above 2.0, uh, you know, testosterone less than 50. So you, you verify the testosterone less than 50, um, but if their PSA goes 0 0.2, 0 0.4, 0 0.5, they have castrate-resistant prostate cancer. You're imaging them to determine if they're metastatic or if they're not. So some of those patients, you'll find that they actually have metastatic uh, cancer that shows itself at that point, which then we're happy to look at systemic options. You're also in that population, if they're not metastatic, it goes back to that one slide. I just always encourage people, think about NCCN guidelines, think about which slide you're, you're on with that patient. You may then identify that non-metastatic, castrate-resistant prostate cancer patient, where if their PSA doubling time is less than 10 months, then they have the options of apalutamide or enzalutamide, the other medications that were, were in that box. And so um, you wanna keep in mind after uh, you know, salvage radiation, you're not using the Phoenix uh, definition of the lowest it goes plus two. Uh, we're really expecting that they go to uh, undetectable uh, and we're, we're following that, that population, you know. Once things settle out, it might be every six months, but initially I'm usually, you know, keeping an eye on them uh, every, every three months in between their six month, you know, Andrew deprivation if they're, if they're continue to be on ADT. Okay. All right, we have all the questions covered then, Dr. Drobish? I think that covers all the questions. Uh, Dr. Neppel, once again, thank you very much for an excellent talk. Uh, it was very informative and I appreciate the time very much. Oh, you bet. Uh, thank you for, uh, for excellent moderator uh, work and uh, I will uh, share the slides in the near future. Uh, and if people have questions, uh, my email was on the first slide. 
uh, can feel free to, uh, to reach out to me also. All right, thanks everybody. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.